Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to the final day of the week, Friday the 28th of April. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. On today's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, director at Staten Advice. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Peter On Wall Street, stocks surged Thursday, boosted by a weaker-than-expected GDP report, which increases the chances that the Fed can transition to a pause in its interest rate hiking cycle as growth and inflation slow. Traders are pricing in 85% odds and a 25 basis point rate increase next week before pausing in June. However, markets also expect at least a half a percentage point worth of rate cuts before the year end, according to the CME Group's FedWatch tracker. The S&P 500 climbed 2% to end at 4,135. The Dow advanced 524 points, or 1.6%, to close at 33,826. The Nasdaq Composite jumped 2.4% to finish at 12,142. The Dow and S&P 500 posted their best day since January, and for the Nasdaq since March. After the bell, online retailer Amazon reported first quarter revenue that topped analysts' estimates. Amazon's advertising and cloud computing businesses both surpassed expectations, helping drive the revenue increase for the quarter. Revenues grew 9% to $127 billion US dollars ahead of forecasts. In extended trading, a 12% jump in Amazon shares has been wiped out and it's now down 2%. Also after the bell, Intel reported its largest quarterly loss in company history. The chipmaker reported a 133% annual reduction in earnings per share, but that was slightly better than Wall Street's expectations. Intel recorded a net loss of 2.8 billion US dollars compared with a profit of 8.1 billion last year. Revenue dropped nearly 36% year over year to 11.7 billion dollars. The stock was flat in extended trading. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose 83 points, or 0.4%, to 19,840, remaining near a four-week low. And since reaching a 2023 high on the 27th of January, the Hang Seng has fallen almost 13%. This morning, futures markets are pointing to gains of 124 points, or 0.6%, for the Hang Seng at the open. The tech index dropped 0.3%. Tech shares listed in the city are now down more than 9% over the past eight trading days and are almost 20% below their year peak, which was hit on January the 27th. The Shanghai Composite was up 0.7% at 3,286. That index has lost 3.2% over the last six days. And Chinese conglomerate Ping An Insurance surged 9% in Hong Kong after the company reported a 49% year-on-year increase in net profits for the first quarter. And you can get all the details on the latest market movements, which is in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Francis Loon, as we always do on a Friday morning, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Good morning. And also joining us, Nick Marrow, who's lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Morning to you, Nick. 
Good morning. Let's start looking at those GDP figures from the US, which came out overnight. The US economy grew by an annualized 1.1% in the first quarter of this year. That's a sharp slowdown from the 2.6% expansion in the previous quarter. It also missed economists' forecasts of 2% growth. It's the weakest expansion since 2022, driven by uh, slowing business investment growth. Inventories also declined and rising interest rates continue to hurt the housing markets. But there was a bright spot. Uh, consumer spending rose by the most in almost two years. It accelerated to 3.7% from 1% in the fourth quarter. Um, Francis, what do you make of this data? I think uh, the Federal Reserve finally can see the results of its uh, credit tightening and the interest rate uh, increases of uh, more than 4% over the last year. And it finally did the job and uh, eco- economic growth is uh, slowing sharply and that will ease the pressure on inflation. I think uh, what you see next is, next is that the uh, unemployment rate will rise and then the inflation uh, will fall. I think uh, one key uh, uh, price you have to look at is the price of diesel that is falling sharply in the U.S. That shows the transport of goods is reduced sharply, and that translates into reduced demand for consumer goods and also industrial goods. So I think uh, uh, we might see a pause in the uh, rate increase uh, next month. I think I think the fact is uh, uh, the Federal Reserve has achieved what it uh, started to uh, to do last year. So you think we're going to get one more rate increase and then the pause after that? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, if you do any and uh, uh, raise interest any higher, it will lead to inflation. Uh, I mean, a recession. Mm. Nico, I suppose this is could be seen as a success for the Fed, couldn't it? If you look at this data, because although economic growth is slowing, which is what the Fed wants, it, it certainly isn't collapsing, is it? Yeah, that's right. I think it fits into this idea that the Fed is really trying to engineer what we would call like a soft landing for the economy. And that's been its goal for a long time. Um, I think we're a little bit more pessimistic on the inflationary outlook and the outlook for rate cuts. Um, and, and that's a little bit related to what's happening with inflationary dynamics specifically. So in early April, we got inflation data for March. And it illustrated that uh, headline CPI was outpaced by core CPI uh, mm. for the first time, uh, I think, since you know 2021. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I agree with uh, Francis in that, you know, further rate hikes, further credit tightening, that is definitely going to raise the risk of the, pushing the U.S. into a recession. That's going to complicate this idea of a soft landing. Um, but I think the outlook for controlling inflation is actually still relatively uncertain, uh, given that even with headline prices coming down, those core prices are still sticky. And when we look into the GDP prints, we see elements of that, uh, mm-hmm. given that consumer spending has been so resilient, even as housing has leveled off and business investment has leveled off. And that really paints a complicated picture for the Fed in terms of engineering the future. So we're a little bit, um, I think, a bit more pessimistic. We're expecting um, still another rate hike in June as well, uh, at least at this moment. Um, but definitely after that, um, a pause, um, given that, just like Francis said, any further tightening in credit conditions really would be bad for the U.S. economy. So do you think these market expectations of after the pause, 50 basis points of rate cuts by the end of the year, is that rather over-optimistic? 
Nick? Um, essentially, I mean, I think um, for, for our U.S. team, for example, um, we are expecting a you know, 25 basis point hike in May and then another 25 basis point in June. So, yes, another cumulative 50, point, uh, 50 basis point hike uh, by the end of the year before the Fed uh, keeps on pause. And at least under our current assumptions, we would expect the U.S. economy to uh, essentially see stagnant growth this year under those assumptions. So I think our real GDP forecast is you know 0.7, but this has not incorporated the GDP data that we had overnight, um, at least for us in Hong Kong. Um, so we're still clinging to somewhat of a cautiously optimistic view here, but given that the GDP release was below market expectations, um, you know, it, it's potential for things to look a lot more ugly than maybe we were anticipating. Francis, when you look in the data, two things stood out, one good, one bad. Let's start with the bad one. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest drop in business investment in equipment <laughs> since the pandemic started in 2020, business investment fell 7.3% on an annual basis. That's not a good sign, is it? Definitely not. I think uh, what, what's happening is that the uh, inflation caused by the spike in the oil prices are really hurting demand for industrial goods. And uh, uh, if you look at the results of TSM and Samsung Electronics, you find out that the demand for uh, electronics uh, are falling, and that translates into electronic consumer goods and maybe a wider area. So, so because of the uh, uh, high inflation, people have less money to spend, and, and they're buying less, and you can see... Uh, industrial activity in China is slowing down. In the, uh, mm. uh, uh, the uh, profit made by the industrial uh, 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 firms are, are falling by something like 20%. So it does not bode well for the global economy in the, in the second half of the year. Nick, this is a, a feature that we're seeing in several places, isn't it? Not just in the US, but also in China as well. Companies seem to be reluctant to invest. What What is it that they're concerned about that's holding them back? Um, uh, I think there's a lot of different issues. Uh, so if we look at the West, for example, it would be things like, you know, the specter of future interest rate hikes uh, and the trajectory of Western economies. I mean, just a couple of months ago, uh, the market projections for, say, growth in the U.S. or growth in the EU were a lot more bearish than they are right now. Um, and so even as you know the growth outlook is improving, I think a lot of people are still holding their breaths. You know, when it comes to Asia as well, um, I think there's been a lot of discussion around how Asia is very much held hostage by these growth constraints um, in the West. Um, if you look at trade data, uh, even from China, uh, but also the wider region, so Taiwan, South Korea, um, just in the last couple of months, um, you know, exports to the U.S. and the European Union have still been on a downward declining trend, um, even if, you know, say the you know, exports to Southeast Asia have been able to make up for that a little bit. Um, and that's, you know, going to be a, a very big story for companies who, you know, were thinking about, you know, expanding this year to take advantage of, say, China's reopening um, or, you know, a recovery and the initial shocks from the war in Ukraine. Um, I think the the thing that's tying all this together really is this sense of uncertainty, uh, which is really clouding the judgment for a lot of firms as they think mm-hmm. about twenty twenty three. Um, Francis, the good news from the uh, from the uh, from the GDP report: consumer spending still mm-hmm. pretty robust, rising three point seven percent, and that's up from one percent in the last quarter of the, of the twenty twenty two. I presume this is linked to the strong jobs growth. People feel mm-hmm. that they can get a job, wages are going up, so they're just carrying on spending. 
Well, that's a little bit strange to me because uh, uh, in previous years, the big ter- big tech firms are the big hires of uh, college graduates, but this year, the big term, the big uh, tech firms are firing people. So actually, you have a tightening uh, job market. But I think in other service sectors, uh, 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 growth is just catching up. So so you have a robust uh, uh, jobs market, which. Uh, continue to support consumer spending, and and of course it is helped by lower uh, uh, gas uh, gas prices and gasoline prices, and that mm. that means more people can travel. So I think uh, if the if you say, uh, say is there any, any uh, 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 bright lining in the in the cloud, I think the consumer spending is one bright spot in the U.S. economy right now. Do you agree, Nick? Is is it consumer spending that's holding up uh, the U.S. economy at the moment? And then presumably, is that a risk going forward? Yeah, it seems to be um, on both accounts in the sense that, yep, it's it's holding up a lot of that headline figure, at least. Um, and I mean, the big risk is, you know, consumer spending is was driving inflation. Uh, mm. and inflation was driving the Fed. And the Fed, <laughs> you know, it more that can crash it. The economy. So it's, we're kind of caught in this really weird cycle. I mean, mm. when I think about spending um, and this idea of, you know, why are people still spending when prices are so high? What's keeping inflation sticky? There's a number of different factors tied to this. It could be sentiment as a result of, you know, a couple of years of lockdowns. Um, or, I mean, people just kind of feel like, you know, now's the time. Now's the time to spend and, and mm-hmm. buy and travel and kind of experience life. Um, and that sounds like a little bit of a silly, non-scientific argument. But when you think about the motivations um, behind why spending is still as resilient as it is, um, I, I do wonder if we're seeing a little bit of a break in the traditional, say, academic orthodoxy and, you know, why people are willing to continue to spend, um, even when all these other structural factors should be suggesting a slowdown. Um, and so I think this is, you know, from a very meta, now, I guess, <laughs> abstract discussion, this is going to really push, you know, people to rethink, not just people like, you know, me and Francis and yourself, but also, you know, people, you know, like working at the Fed, have to rethink about, you know, how consumer patterns are changing and what that really means for you know, the efficacy of policy and reining that in. It seems a bit to me like it's emotional spending. People are saying, oh, well, <laughs> to heck with it. I've still got a job. Whatever happens in the future, let's go out and have fun. That, yeah, that seems to be right. what they're doing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, let's take out the credit card and, and charge it. <laughs> yep. Now, Francis, what's gone wrong for Chinese shares? The, uh, the Hang Seng <laughs> Index, it's what, since it reached um, a high on the 27th of January, it's down 13%. The yeah. tech index just in the last eight days it's down nine percent and uh it's 20 percent below its peak as well even the shanghai composite that's lost three over three percent over the last six days what's going wrong well you can blame it on the big tax uh first first uh, you can blame on jd jd announcing a uh, 10 billion yuan spending speed to uh, uh, uh to to get market share and then followed by uh, Alibaba Cloud. Alibaba Cloud will cut prices by up to 50% to recapture market share. So what you have is, is this cash-rich big tech firms burning money to get market share. <laughs> so if you're doing it, then it's terrible for the shareholders because that, will, that means less money for the shareholders in terms of dividend and things like that. So when you have a big uh, uh, 
a price war like this, shares are not going to do well. Mm. But even though they are very cheap, aren't they? If you look yeah, at the MSCI yeah. China, which has always been cheap, let's yeah, be fair. Yeah, it has but been cheap for it's quite now, two years now. Just trading on seven, just over seven times earnings, the yeah. cheapest in about two decades. But yeah. foreigners don't seem to want to buy. It's foreigners that are the big sellers at the moment, isn't well, it? Well, uh, uh, the US government did not help Joe Biden uh, uh, sign an executive order forbidding Americans to invest in key uh, 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 high-tech uh, Chinese uh, shares. So, so this this means at the same time you get the exodus of uh, U.S. investors from these Chinese shares. So, mm. so, so, so on two fronts: uh, one's from the U.S. government, the other is uh, money burning. So, which depressed the shares and, and geopolitical tensions? They're they're weighing on investors' minds. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, uh, Joe Biden is certainly not a friend of China. Mm. <laughs> He's actually worse than uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> Nick, what do you what do you make of the U.S. the, the things like the uh, the Inflation Reductions Act, uh, the Chips Act, which are really trying to encourage overseas firms to to in effect giving them huge subsidies to go and open manufacturing plants in the U.S., provided um, that a certain percentage of the products they produce are sourced in, in the U.S. Is, is this fair trade? <laughs> I think you raised a great question in the sense that, I mean, I'm laughing just because it's very ironic in that you know, U.S. policymakers, U.S. trade officials constantly criticize China for mm. its industrial policy. For doing exactly the and same thing. the IRA. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's, I think... I'm just thinking about the diplomats and the foreign trade officials who have to try and explain this with a straight face to their partners saying, <laughs> you know, we do we do oppose Chinese industrial policy, but also at the same time, if you want to qualify for IRA, you have to have, you know, U.S. content, uh, which has been a big trade issue between the U.S. and South Korea and Japan and the European Union. Um, not, I mean, that's those are trade disputes that are happening outside of what's happening between, you know, the U.S. and China. And so it really shows how controversial this is. Um, looking at all of this taken together, um, I think you know, Francis has summed up quite nicely in the sense that a lot of Joe Biden's policies towards China have been a lot more biting than under Donald Trump. And perhaps that's because Biden's policies tend to just have a lot more teeth. They're, they're very kind of legally airtight, or at least more legally airtight than you know, what Donald Trump was looking at. And that's caused a lot of disruption when it comes to trans-Pacific you know, business and investment links. And when we look at this in the context of where the U.S. administration is going, including with things like you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, the next sector that we're following very closely is electric vehicles. Um, and that's given the fact that, you know, EVs are now a strategic area of importance for the U.S. It's, it's one of the big areas of trade friction between, again, I mentioned the U.S. and its allies like South Korea, Japan, the EU. But also China is now becoming rapidly one of the world's most important automotive exporters. Mm. Uh, and it's not just EVs there. It's also traditional internal combustion engine models as well. Um, but the strength in NEVs, new energy vehicles in China, that really reflects really strong policy support by the Chinese government since early 2010s in ways that, you know, include subsidies and tax cuts and other fiscal incentives that could arguably be market distortive. Um, and I shouldn't say could. They have been market, market distortive given uh, the dynamics that we've seen domestically in China. I think that's going to catch the eye of U.S. policymakers, given that the Chinese NEV industry is now just very competitive. And that reflects a lot of the subsidy and government support that we've seen over the past decade plus. Um, and that's going to become a trade issue. And that could place this sector very squarely in the crosshairs of the U.S. policy actions to come. So Francis had mentioned the, you know, that, that executive order 
you know, restricting U.S. investment into China, we're concerned that that, you know, would go beyond things like chips and artificial intelligence and supercomputing. The, the industries have already seen targeted and bleed into things like EVs. It's Janet Yellen says that <laughs> the subsidies are only targeted on areas that they think threaten U.S. national security. It's hard to see how electric vehicles threaten U.S. <laughs> national security, isn't it? Yeah, well, basically, it, it, it is like a corporate price for but it is on the sovereign basis. Uh, the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, I think the total amount is something like 793 billion US dollars. And mm-hmm. the EU counter with a 250 billion euro uh, subsidy. So so uh, uh, the, the problem with the EU is that they cannot print money like the US. So so the, the subsidy they offer will be much smaller. As a result, most of the big car companies, uh, when they invest a new plan, uh, they will go to North America because Canada is in, is joining joining the fund too. Because the Volkswagen just announced uh, plans for the biggest battery uh, battery uh, site uh, in St. Thomas, Ontario. Uh, size of uh, 300 football fields with an initial investment of 7 billion US dollars. But mm-hmm. the, go- the Canadian government will offer 13 billion Canadian dollars in tax credits. <laughs> so, I, 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 I think the, the, uh, the, the global car manufacturing companies are laughing all the way to the bank, mm-hmm. uh, paid by this. Uh, citizens of every every country in in the world nick this sounds like it's going to be a race to the bottom because um it, it's only going to get worse isn't it because the u.s is trying to pressurize other governments as well uh, to support it it wants south korea to put pressure on its big chip makers not to fill the gap if micron gets sanctioned we heard today overnight that germany is thinking about uh restricting um exports of certain chemicals that are used in in semiconductors it, from a, a trade perspective it, it seems that um we're, we're sort of splitting into sort of different economic zones now yeah for sure and that's been really i think one of the nightmare scenarios that people have been pondering for a couple of years now this idea that we might be siphoning ourselves off into different regional blocks i mean this kind of comes against this backdrop of broader discussions around you know is a new cold war brewing between the u.s and china and i think a lot of that touches on you know the war in ukraine as well but from an economic angle um this, these developments are worrisome they, they point towards a degree of protectionism that particularly many western governments have not really engaged in before um and it doesn't look like there is an easy way out for any of these sides to resolve some of these issues um i think uh, this is incredibly important as well when it comes to you know where we're going to go from here. The, the U.S. is pushing very, very hard for its allies to come on board with its sanctions and export control regime, primarily because if the U.S. was imposing them unilaterally, these sanctions wouldn't work or these export controls wouldn't work. There's always a risk of leakage. And so you'll in- inevitably need the South Koreans or the Germans, the, the Dutch, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, to come on board with, particularly in the technology sector, these export controls, otherwise there's going to be ways around them, um, which kind of in- invite blowback onto U.S. commercial firms who are losing their opportunities in the Chinese market. Um, and so this is 
I think, a very high-stake, high-risk game that the Biden administration is playing. And as a result, it's going to do everything it can to kind of control those those potential leakages and kind of plug up those gaps um, where it's, where that's available. And so that's going to be a lot more efforts to coordinate with these allies rather than kind of stepping back from the brink. Francis, one thing that we're noticing from all the data and all these company earnings, that the sharp slowdown in demand for semiconductors yeah. um, around the world. We saw that in TSMC's earnings, Samsung mm-hmm. Electronics, there, uh, their, their profits plunged 95%. We saw Intel overnight, the biggest loss, quarterly loss on, on record. Um, why is demand, when you hear about things like oh. artificial intelligence, which needs a yeah. lot of processing power, yeah. why is um, semiconductor demand so weak? Well, that can be blamed on one thing, is the, the end of the pandemic. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, people have to buy a lot more computers for remote learning and Zoom meetings and things like that. But now that people are getting back to work, they don't need to buy another computer at home for 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 working offline for, for, from work from home. So the demand for computers are falling, and this result this resulted in a sharp demand uh, fall in demand for semiconductors. That's why you see uh, TSM and Samsung Electronics and all these people suffering sharp sales slowdowns. I think this is one sector that is really suffering the most during this recovery from the pandemic. Nick, final word to you. What would you make of this very sharp chip slowdown that we're seeing that's affecting uh, semiconductor manufacturers around the world? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, in theory, we should have seen it coming. Mm. (laughs) Um, There was such a boom in electronics demand over the pandemic um, that, I mean, inevitably wasn't going to be sustainable, right? Like when, you know, life returned to normal and remote working, I think, you know, remote working has has stayed and it's going to stay. But as people are going back into the office and and to school and to other places, you know, outside of their house, that demand for electronics was always going to subside. Um, And yet during the pandemic, we saw all of this investment into chip manufacturing facilities, uh, not just by the big giants, but also by governments trying to attract uh, investment. And that's setting us up and uh, and has been setting us up for, you know, risks around overcapacity um, and the supply glut that we're now currently facing. Um, And so I think when we look at least for the remainder of this year, it's a situation that likely isn't going to start turning until the second half of 2023. But looking at some of the industry reports, uh, even that might be a little bit too optimistic. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. Have a a great long weekend. It's a holiday weekend here in Hong Kong, also on the mainland as well. That was Nick Marrow, who's lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is Director of Staten Advice down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. And um, we had some inflation data out this week from uh, from Australia. The annual rate of inflation it's down to seven percent. That's down from a thirty year high of seven point eight percent in Q four. Slightly higher though than expectations. What do you make of this? It's um, okay. It's coming down, I suppose, but still pretty high, isn't it? Yeah, I think the the, the most interesting thing is the is not so much that uh, the the absolute numbers down. That's a good thing. It's, it's it's not expected, but it's a slowing rate of increase across most of the inputs into the inflation data, which is slightly positive, um, with a couple of exceptions. And 
so I guess what people are now looking at is to say, okay, 7% is still way too high when 2 to 3% is the RBA band for uh, inflation targeting. So monetary policy technically should still continue to, to be aimed at uh, reducing inflation and hence uh, interest rates may need to go up again. But right now I think that declining speed of increases is enough to probably have the RBA on hold again in May. And is it um, having an impact on the economy, as we saw from the US GDP data overnight, that all these inc- interest rate increases are now starting to slow the economy? Are you seeing the same thing in Australia? Yeah, the, I think it's uh, it's interesting. You know, I think the, there's no doubt the you know there is the economy is slowing, and I guess the question is how quickly is it slowing, and how deep is it going to slow? Um, my assessment on that is that you know Australian economy is probably slightly stronger in terms of its structural fundamentals, um, uh, and there are plenty of things to watch out for, um, particularly uh, in regards to the immigration move in Australia, where we're actually going to see this. Uh, ironically, we're going to see this, a, a large inflow of people, mm-hmm. which will have a, a positive impact in terms of GDP, but also have an inflationary impact. Mm-hmm. And so from an Australian perspective, which is quite peculiar uh, to the rest of the world, is that we're going to have a large inflow of, of migrants over the next 12 months, partly um, a catch-up from pre-COVID, but also a government willing to, to push the boundaries a little bit on in, in immigration because we know it has such a positive impact on GDP in Australia. So we're going to have um, probably an inflated GDP relative sense because of that inflow, but at the same time that'll be inflationary. And so it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out in terms of monetary policy and also fiscal policy going forward. And what about the consumer? Is the consumer still spending like they are in uh, in the US? That data overnight from the US showed a pretty robust consumer. What's it like down there? It is much the same. Uh, services sector is still uh, high, but a lot of that money that they're spending is on rent uh, and on gas prices and this is an issue. So, yes, I think consumers are still spending, but uh, a lot of their budget is now being tied up in rent and uh, and in you know energy uh, bills, electricity, etc. And that's that's starting to you know squeeze the consumer discretionary sectors. And so we'll be watching you know the those areas where you'll see most of the belt tightening happen quickly is um, in you know consumer discretionary restaurants, tourism. But at the moment, uh, there's still a lag there, which is still quite positive. And what about the Reserve Bank of Australia itself? It's it's come under for quite a lot of criticism, hasn't it, for being too slow in raising interest rates. In fact, it wasn't that long ago, I think, that the governor of the RBA said there wouldn't be any interest rate increases until at least next year. But now we've had, um, what, at least five or six of them. Um, and there's there's talk or recommendations that the RBA is going to be restructured. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, it sounds like a little of a, a scapegoat exercise on the RBA, but there was the government has introduced some you know recommendations. There was a review on the Reserve Bank, and fifty-one recommendations came in. Most of it's renovating, if I you know, rather than you know a large restructuring reform of the Reserve Bank. And one of the criticisms was um, around the decision making on monetary policy that it was a, lacking a little bit of transparency, uh, lacking some expertise in terms of who's making those decisions. Um, uh, you know, tying into government in relation to the treasury and, uh, you know, uh, looking at fiscal policy at the same time as determining monetary policy. So a lot of these things are pretty normal and they're pretty uh, consistent with what you see in central banks around the world. So part of its uh, reform is just um, bringing it up to the level where it needs to be. And that would predominantly mean that the decision-making around monetary policy is 
is tied in with a group of experts as opposed to, you know, sort of cached uh, board members that uh, sort of join over time on the Reserve Bank. So it's a good thing. Um, the one concerning thing about restructuring and the RBA is monetary policy is there to target inflation and more and price stability. And one of the reforms that they're bringing in is for the Reserve Bank to consider the unemployment rate uh, in, in its deliberations around monetary policy. And that could potentially create some concerns because um, it's very difficult for monetary policy to have any direct impact on the labour market, at least in a, in a direct sense. So mm. this will be a challenging element, I think, for the Reserve Bank uh, board to have to consider that factor in its decisions around interest rates. Uh, and that makes it a little more complicated. But overall, you know, for those in the headlines, the RBA sort of became a bit of a scapegoat around the 10, in, 10 consecutive rate increases that happened. Um, and, uh, you know, so the government probably didn't do enough to protect the Reserve Bank in that regard because politically it was expedient. And secondly, the reforms that they're doing are probably um, reasonable. My only doubt would be around the um, unemployment uh, rate being considered in monetary policy decision-making. So so this idea of having a separate monetary policy committee, this is in effect what the Bank of England does and the Bank of Canada. So um, there, yes. there are precedents elsewhere in the world, aren't there, for this? That's right. It's it, As I said, I think anyone who, who claims that this is a major shift in um, uh, on the way RBA should operate uh, you know, needs to see that it's pretty consistent with mm. the rest of the world. Well, one thing that they are going to do is they're going to cut now the number of meetings they have per year from, I think it's 11 at the moment, and just have eight meetings a year where they consider um, interest rates. Is is that a good or a bad thing? I think it goes around to the idea of consistency and, and gives certainty to the markets and certainty to uh, to to the uh, population around the setting of interest rates. Um, and I think having it flagged and having it consistent, whether it's eight or 10 or eight or 11 meetings, I'm not sure is necessarily the relevant point. It's more about the transparency and the consistency and the approach to the decision-making. And I think what um, what came out of the, the last two years was, you know, a sense of disconnect between what the Reserve Bank had to do and how it had communicated that. So you look in the Fed, you know, starting to build that dot plot around future interest rates. Those sort of things, I think, uh, are, I need to come in. And the amount of meetings is probably, you know, it's not necessarily relevant um, in terms of frequency. Now, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the markets. First of all, we had that US GDP data out overnight. Uh, the US markets loved it. Uh, we saw a big surge, uh, the biggest surge since January for the S&P 500. It seems US stocks... They're proving pretty resilient, aren't they? I mean, we've got high inflation. Um, we've got a slowing economy. We've got the Fed raising rates and inverted yield curve. It just seemed that we've got a banking um, crisis of sorts in the US, but they just seem to ignore it all and just keep on powering ahead. Yeah, it, it, it is some, yeah it, it's somewhat confusing. You know, GDP figure itself was, was sort of fairly weak. Uh, and probably, you know, would suggest that maybe we're closer to a recessionary type of climate going forward, uh, albeit still positive GDP. I think what what's really driven the sentiment this week is the results for the tech stock, uh, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, uh, Meta. Um, they've really uh, outperformed. So you saw initially the Nasdaq was the one that got the got the the real boost, and then the broader indexes picked up uh, overnight quite substantially. Um, so I think the sentiment probably this week was a, was targeted around those earnings of those uh, tech stocks, which are darlings, 
obviously for a lot of investors. You know, they get a lot of press. Um, so that's probably driven a bit more of the sentiment. But I think you're right. I think it's quite surprising how resilient the stock market has been. Um, now, one of the reasons I think probably is that bond markets uh, yields have dropped quite quite substantially at the, from the beginning of the year uh, along the curve. Um, but if you look at the at the two tens, it's still inverted, still pointing to recession. So I'm a little more, you know, conservative in terms of my views around the equity market. I'm not convinced that it's <laughs> it's uh, it's not still the old adage: sell in May and go away. Um, and so I'll be watching closely. Volatility came off a little bit as well overnight. So um, I'm with you, Pete. I'm not convinced why the market is so resilient. And, and a couple of things on the horizon that I'm wondering if investors should be focused on. First of all, the banking crisis. Everyone thought a couple of weeks ago that maybe um, that was under control. But now uh, this week, we've seen more f- problems with First Republic Bank. Its shares crashed 50% on Wednesday, another 30% uh, uh, sorry, 50% on Tuesday, another 30% mm. Wednesday. They did rebound a bit overnight today. But uh, is is this uh, another potential problem on the horizon? Well, it, it was quite astounding, the amount of withdrawals that came out of First Republic. Uh, I think it was 150 bill, wasn't it? Um, and the share price obviously reflected that. But it didn't seem to, to create any, um, I guess, any sort of spread uh, uh, across the sector too much. And I think maybe the other factors that we discussed just recently about, you know, why the market was so positive drowned out that. I thought it was more interesting when I looked at the Credit Suisse results and the amount of withdrawals that came out of Credit Suisse in the in the last quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year. Um, made you realise how, you know, how much trouble they were in and why UBS uh, deal, why the Swiss National Bank came in and put the UBS deal together. So what it tells you is that yeah these these are these runs on banks can be really really significant and very very damaging. Um, First Republic will be one to watch, but you know they're not unique. Uh, there are other banks at the regional level in the U.S. that could end up in the same same uh, same boat. And uh, I was just staggered by the the number of uh, the amount of withdrawals that happened. Um, whether it uh, has a contagion effect at the moment, it doesn't appear so, but uh, we'll be watching it closely. And how much should we be looking at the debt ceiling as well? Um, the, the U.S. Treasury could potentially run out of money sometime between um, May and May and September, um, unless Congress raises the limit on the on the debt ceiling. The Republicans have passed a bill, but that seems to be dead on arrival in uh, in the Senate. Um, should we be watching this and getting concerned because it is causing some kinks in the bond market, isn't it? I think it'd be worth keeping an eye on for sure. I think the last time they had the major crisis was in 2011, and the uh, there was a downgrade of U.S. credit rating as a result of uh, of a prolonged crisis on the debt ceiling, and stocks got hammered, as far as I recall. And so, yeah, it's definitely something that could. Um, the X date, uh, what is the date where the Treasury runs out of money to pay its bills? We don't know exactly, um, but... Uh, I suspect what um, what the Republicans are trying to use as a political game to some extent to force um, uh, a spending restraint. It's not a it's not a bad thing, but um, the me- mechanism of trying to use the debt ceiling as the as the trigger is is more politically driven. But the reality on what is being offered in terms of some fiscal restraint and reducing the spending growth um, by the government's not a bad thing. Um, it's just the way in which it's being managed from a political perspective. So I'd be watching it because it looks to me like there's no agreement possible through the Senate currently. 
Toby, thank you very much indeed. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is director at Staten Advice down in Sydney, Australia. And thank you very much for listening today. And this week, you can get more information on breaking business news and market movements in my daily updates, which are posted on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. There's no program on Monday, as it's a public holiday here in Hong Kong, also on the mainland as well. Money Talk will return on Tuesday when I'll be joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft, Richard Harris, chief executive officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. Have a great long weekend. See you Tuesday. Money Talk. 